topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the host and their guests, and not those of W4CS Radio, its employees, or affiliates. W4CS makes no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Support Network on W4CS.com. Any health-related information on the following show provides general information only. Content presented on any show by any host or guest should not be substituted for a doctor's advice. Always consult your physician before beginning any new diet, exercise, or treatment program. Hello everyone, welcome to 5 to Thrive Live. This is a show co-hosted weekly by Dr. Lisa Schuler and Carolyn Gazella. And tonight I'm hosting the show solo and I'm very much looking forward to the show and to talking with my guests this evening. And by the way, if you've missed any of our prior shows, don't worry. You can catch all of our prior shows in two ways. You can go to iHeartRadio. And once there, if you're not already a subscriber, just subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything. And then search 5 to Thrive Live, and you'll find all of our prior podcasts. You can also find uh, previous shows and the podcasts on www.ithriveplan.com. So in lots of ways, you can catch up on the iThrive show. And as we always do, we thank our sponsors very much, who are Cetria Glutathione, Cognizant Cytocholine and the iThrive Plan. And we are going to really have a good conversation tonight about a very important topic. And I think one that maybe is getting a little less stigmatized, but certainly still tends to get kind of swept under the rug a bit. So the topic of the show tonight is sexuality during and after cancer treatment. And this is really a huge issue. And, you know, I think still one that really just doesn't get discussed often enough. Because did you know that two-thirds of all cancer survivors have some impairment in their sexual function either during or following treatment. Two-thirds, two out of every three people who have gone through the diagnosis and treatment for cancer emerge with some difficulty in sexual function, and that, of course, will affect the quality of their life, their relationship to their health, their healing, their intimate relationships. It really has a lot of you know domino-like effects in their life, and in, of those two out of three people who have these sexual disorders, uh, a third of those have not had any treatment for it. So there's really, it's an undertreated uh, condition. So there's a lot of opportunity here. So helping us to learn more about sexual dysfunction after cancer is our guest this evening, Dr. Judith Boyce. Dr. Boyce is a naturopathic doctor. She has a passion for working with cancer, women's health, pain, and chronic illness. And she's traveled all over the U.S. conducting over a thousand trainings and public lectures on women's health, menopause, and osteoporosis. She's the author of several magazine articles and 10 books, including The Green Medicine Chest, Healthy Treasures for the Whole Family, which was honored with a silver medal in the Nautilus Book Awards and a bronze medal in the Living Now Book Awards. And she maintains a practice in Madras, Oregon. So, Dr. Boyce, welcome to 5 to Thrive Live. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm delighted to have you here, and I'm delighted to be talking with you about this important topic. So, you know, I know that this topic, sexual dysfunction, is actually of interest to you, and I know this because you are going to be presenting on this very same topic at the upcoming Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians Annual Conference in February. So why are you so interested in educating others about this topic? Actually, actually, my patients were the ones who began bringing up issues about sexuality. They usually waited till everyone else had left the room. I worked in a team where there would be up, sometimes up to half a dozen of us in the room at a time with the patients, and they'd wait till everybody else had left the room, and then they'd look at me and they'd say, I'm so 
upset or I'm so worried. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my partner. I'm, I, I just have no libido. Can you give me any ideas about what to do? And so I knew it was a real issue for people, but it was one that was not easy to bring out, to bring out into the open. And from as I've begun to research more, I knew that there was an issue. And then from that, I began to present to other providers and the, the cancer center where I worked. And then they actually formed a whole um, small group that was focused on supporting patients with their sexual needs. So it really was brought up by patients and they expressed a deep concern and a deep need to be able to discuss sexuality as part of the whole picture of their health. Yeah, that's so great that you really took that um, sort of whispered, you know, wish for help and and really proactively acted on that with so much support. And, and I'm sure in the process have really educated yourself a lot about this whole issue and have learned a lot about what we can do, you know, and before we kind of get further along, I think it's important to to corral the phrase because sexual dysfunction sounds very medical. It's actually kind of a medical term and who wants to say they have sexual dysfunction. So uh, we're going to probably come back. I'll probably keep saying it just because it's, you know, hard to get out of your medical training, but what is that? What's included in sexual dysfunction? Do you know that I think the easiest way to describe it just in common terms is to say any distress or dis concern that you are having about your sexuality and I want to also broaden sexuality to include intimacy most people telescope sexuality to just mean intercourse but there's so many ways that we can be sexual and sensual in our relationships and um, in our approach to the world actually so Mm -hmm. the um, sexuality is when someone starts to have concerns about their ability to be intimate whether or not that involves intercourse and sexuality is a part of the core of who we are so when someone feels like they're not able to express themselves in a way that's meaningful to them their sexuality cannot be expressed the way they want to me I would call that sexual dysfunction okay yeah so I, I mean I really love that way that you just described it I think um You know, another way that I've often heard it talked about, in addition to what you just said, which is encompassing of intimacy, is is it also encompasses libido, and we'll talk more specifically Mm -hmm. about libido, but libido is life force. You know, that's really what it means. So sexuality is also an expression of one's life force, or one's chi, right? (laughs) That's right. And actually, in Chinese medicine, that question, I'm also an acupuncturist, and and one of the questions that's that's commonly asked in a visit is, are you interested in having sex? Do you have any libido? And the reason for that is that our bodies first focus on our core vital organs, and then whatever is left over goes to our reproductive system. And that's something that I emphasize with patients, that if they really want to restore their libido, it involves restoring and revitalizing all of their internal organs. So there's enough energy to overspill into the reproductive system. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's a, a very nice way to think about it. And um, the reproductive system, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't just refer to the reproductive organs per se, but encompasses really part of the limbic or the brains and, and nervous system and other things, yes? Yes, and the understanding is that the, if our body is stressed then the first system to go out the window, so to speak, is our reproductive system. Because we can live without our reproductive system, but we cannot live without our heart, our stomach, our liver, all of those vital internal organs. So it is ab- our reproductive system is vital for our survival as a species, but it's not vital for our, our survival as an individual. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the fact that that when someone does have libido, when they do have sexual interest, it means they're replete, they're full up, they have enough vitality to overspill into that system. And mm-hmm. you're right, it, it involves so many aspects of our whole being, not just our reproductive organs. Yeah, okay, good. Well, that's a great introduction. So with that, we're going to take our first break. When we come back, Dr. Judith Boyce and I are going to continue this conversation. We're going to get right down to it, so stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Attention all cancer survivors, are you ready to thrive? Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Schuler, And I'm Carolyn Gazella, and we are the creators of the new iThrive Cancer Survivor Online Wellness Plan. iThrive creates an individualized wellness plan specifically based on your health needs. We focus on five key areas to improve your health. Diet, movement, environment, rejuvenation, and spirit. After completing a short survey, an individualized iThrive plan will be created just for you. Your plan will contain recommended, interactive, interesting, and innovative action steps in these five key areas of lifestyle. The iThrive plan will help you to recover from cancer treatment, reduce your risk of recurrence, and to achieve optimal wellness. In other words, it will help you thrive. For more information about the iThrive plan, visit www.ithriveplan.com. That's ithriveplan.com. Check it out today and receive a special time-limited offer. Visit www.ithriveplan.com today. It's time to thrive, everyone. We are constantly being bombarded by toxins in the air we breathe, water we drink, and even the foods we eat. So what's the answer? Glutathione. It's inside every cell in your body and protects you from the damage of oxidative stress and toxins. There's a special patented form of glutathione that is superior called Cetria. Cetria is pure, vegetarian, and allergen-free. Help replenish your body's reserves of this very important nutrient, detoxified a natural way. Visit cetriaglutathione.com. That's cetriaglutathione.com. Welcome back to Five to Thrive Live. I'm Dr. Lisa Schuler, and I'm here with my guest, naturopathic doctor and acupuncturist, Judith Boyce, and our topic is sexual dysfunction after cancer. So we've broadened this definition, hopefully, for our listeners beyond just genital sex, because there's a lot more involved with sexuality, and I think one of the things is the idea of libido. So how would you define libido? I think of it as our interest in having sex, having uh, not an obsession with, but an interest in being sexual, whether that's with another person or pleasuring ourselves. It's having interest in that sexual aspect of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And is libido always present? I mean, is it normal or does it decline naturally? What What's the deal with libido? Generally, there's a decline over our life cycle and then also within a relationship. And this is an important piece to understand as well. There's a wonderful book by Dr. Patricia Love, and that really is her name. And the book is called Hot Monogamy. And she talks about how when we very first fall in love, we have this incredible spike in phenylethylamine, these blissful hormones in our body. We have epinephrine, norepinephrine. We just feel wonderful. And every time we think about that person, every time we are near them, we touch them, there's this dump of the hormones. So we want to be around them all the time, and we want to think about that person all the time. That blissful hormonal ride lasts about six to nine months, and then it declines over the next year to year and a half. So that by the time we get to 18 to 24 months, you really hope that you like that person. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a good friendship underneath because the hormonal ride will be over at that point. And so we do have some biochemical support when we first get into a relationship with someone. If we fall in love, there's an amazing biochemical encouragement to be around that person and intimate with that person. Um, And Dr. Patricia Love's point with her book, Hot Monogamy, is that we can continue to nurture that desire for uh, sexual expression but it's more cultivated after that point. We don't have the hormonal rocket fuel to stimulate that desire. So 
part of um, part of our libido has to do with where we are in a relationship cycle. And some people think there's something wrong after that 20, 18 to 24 month period if they don't have the same intensity of desire. But that's actually part of the, for most people, that's part of the maturation of the relationship. There's a different kind of fuel that drives the relationship after that point. And then from um, another level of understanding from Chinese understanding or Chinese medical understanding is that our libido tends to be highest during our teenage years into our 20s and then it begins to decline over the course of our lives and there's encouragement to be ongoing sexually active but the frequency of having libido or the intensity of having libido is different at 20 than it is at 50 60 70 years old so there's an understanding that generally uh, we begin to quiet down as as we age not that libido ever completely goes away but that it uh, the intensity and frequency tends to diminish over time mm-hmm. so we sort of have a situation let's say where somebody's been in a long-term relationship committed relationship so that there's a, a likely to be some decline in libido naturally just mm-hmm. because of the duration of the relationship and they're uh, let's say older which is when most cancer strikes so they've got sort of two hits and then cancer comes as a third hit so this can really you know take libido down into the take a nosedive basically yeah, right. and I'm curious if you could just describe why the diagnosis of cancer and you know the treatment is associated with decreased libido. Again, there's that understanding that we have to be replete, like a full tank of gas. We need a full tank of gas, metaphorically, in our energy levels to have interest in libido. And generally, cancer is a late-stage chronic disease. That's something that I often... Um, find myself explaining to cancer patients who are wondering why they can't just take a pill or two and have their energy come back. Usually the body is very depleted by the time we develop cancer. I'm saying usually because there's some there can be extenuating circumstances like after chemical exposures or things like that. But generally cancer occurs when the body has been severely depleted. It's a chronic late stage disease. So we don't have that sense of our full vitality when we're diagnosed with cancer. So that's, as you mentioned, that's the third challenge that we often have to have that core of energy and vitality to have interest in Mm -hmm. being sexual. And by definition, if someone has cancer, most of that, not all, but much of that vitality has been depleted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that energy thing really it deserves emphasis because it's just it would be highly unusual for somebody to have cancer to go through treatment and to maintain exuberant energy. I mean, there's just a hit that happens, and so libido is going to follow suit with that. Right, and just a note with that, and this is very different from the Western understanding in Chinese medicine. If someone has a very debilitating late stage condition, they actually encourage people not to have um, intercourse or genital kinds of sex because that actually takes a deposit out of our energy reserves from Chinese understanding. They think metaphorically of the kidney being the bank account for energy and they're all different kinds of things that make us um, take deposits, withdrawals, withdrawals out of that bank account, Mm -hmm. that energy Mm -hmm. bank account. And sexuality is one of the things that causes us to make withdrawals from that energy bank account. From Mm -hmm. Chinese understanding, it's the male ejaculating or the female making vaginal lubrication we take it takes a certain amount of our vitality to have um, to have sex to have genital sex so um, the, there's an understanding that in severe illnesses we may actually want to reserve our um, for men our sperm and ejaculation for women our vaginal lubrication and still be intimate and loving with um, people around us and still have that intimate relationship with ourselves if we're not partnered but not necessarily to um, focus just on orgasm as the expression of that sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you probably will go into this 
also, but when I think about the decline in libido in people who have been uh, diagnosed with cancer, I think also about some of the disfigurement that comes with the surgeries or even, you know, the fibrosis from radiation or what have you, and it can cause some some changes in how one feels about their sexual attractiveness, which can affect libido, even with a partner that's been with them for a long time. People lose their hair with chemo. That affects, I think, how they feel sexually and therefore can, you know, take another chunk out of their libido. <laughs> right. And and for women, some women will say, I feel like I'm not a woman anymore because I don't have a breast or both breasts, or I've had my uterus or ovaries removed or for men that I can't have an erection, therefore I'm not a man. So there, those are internalized messages, whether, whether or not they've ever been actually verbally spoken to that person, they may have internalized those messages from their family, from their culture, from their cohorts around them, that they've internalized this idea that their identity, to a certain extent as a human being, is tied up with their performance sexually. And as you mentioned, also there can be, even if it's not um, their breast or their penis that's been affected, they may have scars in the abdomen, which can make having um, intimacy intercourse or not uncomfortable. And also if there are bone metastases, the bones can be um, very sensitive. And so it's also important that the partner that you're being intimate with has discovered ways of um, positioning you and positioning themselves so that you can be intimate in a way that's physically comfortable for both people. I don't think there's anything that's a greater turnoff sexually than to be in pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so it's like finding, finding ways of being comfortable and same with self-pleasuring, like to find ways if you, um, do want to have stimulation, sexual stimulation, that you're comfortable physically being able to do that. So there are just, there are a whole range of issues that can happen with our physical vehicles through the process of cancer treatment that can change our comfort level and as well as our concept even of ourselves. It can be that basic, that primal that we, um, we, in many cases, end up needing to come to know ourselves in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a nice way to say it. And I think that that really starts to get to a point you made earlier that I want to come back to, which is that the only goal of you know improving one's sexual dysfunction should not just be to gain more frequent and pleasurable sex, that there's really more to sexual intimacy. So But I think that's a hard concept for a lot of people because our culture is so much, we've just created a big equal sign between sexual intimacy and having genital sex. So can you describe how you have this conversation with your patients to help them expand their understanding and appreciation for sexuality? Yes. One of the things I really encourage um, patients to do is to begin a discussion if they are partnered with someone, to begin a discussion with their partner about what they are experiencing, but also what the partner's expecting. So it's more than more than once, many times, a patient has come and said, oh my gosh, I just have no libido, and I know my husband's upset, and um, I, I just, I don't know what to do about it, and, or the, the male coming and saying, wow, I've, you know, my, my partner is, Uh, I know they're going to leave me if I can't have intercourse. And so I've got to do something about this. And then when they've actually started the discussion and, and I welcome and encourage them to bring their partner with them so that we can have the conversation together. Many times the partner says, that is not the most important thing to me right now. I'm interested in you being alive, that I'm not looking for someone else to have sex with. That is not the most important thing to me. Yeah. Um, so that's a so very just a li- yeah, aligning expectations. I mean, boy, that would just take the pressure off, right? So that would be a huge step. Yes. Relief. <laughs> yes. And and one woman came back and she said, I had because we had had maybe a couple of visits talking about libido and I said, "Have you talked to your husband?" She said, "Well, no." And the next time she came in, she said, oh, "I'm so relieved. We had a conversation." And he says he's got chronic health things going on right now too and 
and he's really not interested. So it took an incredible load off of her mind and her heart that she felt that she wasn't providing something for her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to follow up on that for a moment, if the conversation doesn't go so well and there is some expectation there, at least I would think the conversation has started, so now there's an opportunity to, to come to some common goals and things that would work for both individuals. Yes, and I've also had the conversations with couples. Um, one woman in particular had been diagnosed with a very form, a very aggressive form of triple negative breast cancer when she was, I think she was 29, 28 or 29. And her husband was within a year or two of the same age. And she was angry, really angry because the treatments that she was going through were causing vaginal dryness and hot flashes and night sweats. And she was really tired. And she said, you know what? We're young. We're still really interested in having sex. What can we do about this? And so then it was a mission to begin to look at okay, how can you have sex that's not painful? What are the things that we can do to support vaginal lubrication? Positioning, like using pillows under the pelvis because she had some bony metastases in the hip area. Like, what can we do to help you be comfortable? And then it was also an understanding for her partner to know that um, he needed to be more gentle in the way that he was um, being intimate with her. His thrusting needed to be gentler. And they would actually have periods of um, entry where they would just lie together. They would just lie down together and just enjoy being intimate with each other to have um, penetration, but not to have movement. And that was a whole new experience and understanding for them of how to be intimate and close with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're describing is so important, which is really just opening up this idea of sensuality and bringing sensuality into the bedroom. And I'm wondering before we get, because I, I do want to definitely get to some very brass tacks strategies about vaginal dryness and erectile dysfunction. But before we mm-hmm. go there, what in addition to, uh, I think, just skin-to-skin contact, which you've just talked about, how else can, any other strategies come to mind that you'd like to share just that? that you found couples really uh, resonate with in terms of improving their sensuality with one another? Yes. One is to uh, set dates. And I always thought that was just so... um, (laughs) New, modern age, right? (laughs) Right. To set dates and then to begin to start making love three or four days ahead of time. And people often look at me funny. And, And what I mean by that is sending each other little text messages, leaving maybe a handwritten note in their pocket that they find later. Or maybe you send them special emails or you leave notes around the house for them to find. And also having more time of hugging and kissing, again, without the expectation of it going somewhere. Um, And Sometimes it's intimacy is listening to music together or reading out loud together, just sharing our lives and our thoughts and feelings on a really deep level. There's a, an opportunity to open up those areas. And I, I know this is not necessarily to do with sexuality, but my two, my boys, I gave birth to twins and they were in the NICU and the neonatal intensive care unit. And I wasn't allowed to touch them because their nervous systems are underdeveloped at that point and they're hypersensitive to touch. I shouldn't say I wasn't allowed. They encouraged me not to because it actually irritates the, the babies when their nervous system is underdeveloped. So I'd sing to them. And, and that that's how I would spend a lot of my days was singing to them. And they knew my voice And that was very soothing to them. So there are many, many ways that we can connect and be intimate that don't necessarily even involve physical touch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. That's really a lovely story. And your boys are much older now. How old are your boys? They're 17 now. 17. So the singing worked. (laughs) (laughs) They they made it through. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so let's um, let's transition to some strategies because I think that, frankly, um, in addition to all of what you have shared, which are which is really important, and I don't want to discount any of this. And if that's all that people come away with from this show, I think that's huge and fantastic. That being said, there is uh, definitely a, some very real physical issues as a result of cancer and its treatment for many men and women who do want to be physically, sexually active, 
but yet it's just either uncomfortable or difficult to do. So let's start with women. And um, I think one of the most common issues for women physically is vaginal dryness, which can happen as a result of chemotherapy, radiation. It can happen as a result of endocrine therapy after breast cancer. So lots of things can cause vaginal dryness. So first of all, um, if this occurs, should a woman go seek help from a health professional? And if so, with whom should she consult? Those are really good questions. And I'll offer you um, sort of plan A, B, C, because sometimes the first plan doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. So um, the part of the answer, again, goes back to how are you being sexual? How are you being intimate? And how important is vaginal penetration in your particular experience of sexuality? If it's, um, for example, if a woman is not partnered and she um, really enjoys self-stimulation and she can do that without vaginal penetration, it may not be a big issue for her at all. But if vaginal penetration is important, whether it's solo or whether it's with a partner, then definitely it's something that ideally would be addressed. And something that I learned when I started to research is that most patients are waiting for the healthcare provider to bring it up. Mm -hmm. And the sad truth is only about 10% of healthcare providers ask, are you having any sexual difficulties? Do you have vaginal dryness? Is anything going on? So often it's going to be up to you to bring it up. And to be prepared, and if they get red in the face and stammer and just say, I I don't know what to say to that, then you can very politely ask, do you have any suggestions for resources where I could get help? Do you have any referrals to a gynecologist or to someone, a gynecological oncologist, uh, because it's important that they have an understanding of cancer? Or do you have anyone on your staff who works with mind-body medicine or is a counselor who can help me find help? So first is to, to, unfortunately, it often will be you screwing up your courage to ask. And you might preface it by saying to the doctor, I have an important question I want to ask. Could we have at least a couple minutes to talk? And then the other thing about that question, that particular question, and then the other thing is to make sure you have some kind of a plan before you leave. If it's not working with that person directly, then to make sure that you have a referral to go to talk to someone else. So the, the most likely candidates for somewhere people who will be able to provide you support and help, one is the oncologist, and there are some oncologists who are absolutely fabulous and are willing to talk and have um, great information. There may also be, um, in that cancer center, a nurse practitioner, a naturopathic physician, a physician's assistant who has more specialized knowledge and expertise. Definitely check in with your naturopathic physician because there are natural ways of working with vaginal dryness and then also potentially a counselor. Sometimes vaginal, um, what's called vaginal stenosis where the vaginal opening is pretty tightly closed can also be in part from anxiety. So there may be a whole range of different ways that you address the vaginal changes. Yes, and I think that implied in your answer is that there is hope, that there are strategies that can be effective in minimizing vaginal dryness. And thank you for saying that, because at one point I had a patient who came, she had not had cancer, but she and her husband had just gotten really busy and had not had sex for 10 years, and she developed vaginal stenosis where she just was her vaginal tissue had atrophied to the point where there was no potential for vaginal penetration. And her family doctor told her, well, that's it, you're done. (laughs) No no possibility of having sex again. And I said, oh my goodness, that is not true. So the the restoration of vaginal function requires patience, but it is definitely possible. So for that patient, um, and this is true for anyone who's also had vaginal dryness issues, if you've got a a narrowing of the vaginal opening, to begin using vaginal lubrication, the the simplest, most non-invasive, easy way is to begin using on a daily basis a water-based lubricant. There are many different companies now that you can find that don't have a lot of preservatives or flavorings or different junk 
that's been added to water-based lubricants. And use your little finger and very gently begin to insert the finger and very gently massage around the vaginal opening. And when you're comfortable with your little finger, then you use a larger finger and eventually two fingers. Just very, and I'm talking about often over weeks, this is not something to try to push in a few days or even a week or two. It's a very gradual, gentle stretching of the tissue. And they found that daily water-based lubricants can be um, almost as effective as using vaginal estrogen, which is what's commonly given to women who are menopausal. But for most women after cancer therapy, they're not going to be using vaginal estrogen. So the water-based lubricant is the simplest, easiest thing to begin with. Even if you're not going to have intercourse, just use the vaginal lubricant daily. Second is to use a vaginal moisturizer. They're a bit more expensive, a bit thicker, and they stick better to the vaginal walls. So they give longer-term lubrication. Generally, you use that daily for seven to ten days, and then after that, you may only need it two or three times a week. Um, but if you're concerned about expense, just using the plain water-based lubrication can be as effective as the moisturizer. Um, and if, it, if I could just jump in and, and clarify, because you stress water-based lubrications uh, a lot, which is great just to give people, um, it's going to require a little investigation because the common, say, KY jelly is not a water-based lubricant. Right, good point. So it yeah, so it just will, it will, there are definitely options available now, which is the good news and lots of them. Right. And, and thank you for bringing up to uh, that I'm saying water-based lubricant because there also have been studies done using olive oil. Olive oil is a wonderful lubricant. It's not great if you're going to use condoms though. If you're using condoms, any oil-based lubricant will destroy the rubber. So Oil, if you're not using condoms, any kind of oil is great. Or if you're not going to be having intercourse that day and just want to use a lubricant, olive oil and um, coconut oil, organic coconut oil are excellent choices for lubrication. Um, so those are, it doesn't have to be just the, the water-based lubricant. Another piece here is look at the ingredients of the lubricant and make sure that glycerin is not in the top three ingredients. Glycerin actually wicks water out of the vaginal tissue and will over, the, over time make that vaginal tissue even drier, even though it's been called a lubricant. Um, and this is a little side note just for knowledge and information. The cosmetic industry in the United States is completely unregulated, so they do not have to put anything on that package and there's almost never full disclosure of the ingredients in a product. Mm. So. Um, it just take what's on that label with a grain of salt um, and know that if the top one of the top three ingredients is glycerin, it's probably wicking more fluid out of the vaginal tissue than it's providing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good tip. Well, and I think just the, uh, the always available olive oil and coconut oil are also great tips. Again, as you said, unless condoms are in the picture. Well, that has just been a little treasure trove of some good strategies, and we're going to uh, address erectile dysfunction in men, but it is time for our second break, our second and final break, so stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation. Attention all cancer survivors, are you ready to thrive? Hello, I'm Dr. Lee Sauschuler. And I'm Carolyn Gazella, and we are the creators of the new iThrive Cancer Survivor Online Wellness Plan. iThrive creates an individualized wellness plan specifically based on your health needs. We focus on five key areas to improve your health. Diet, movement, environment, rejuvenation, and spirit. After completing a short survey, an individualized iThrive plan will be created just for you. Your plan will contain recommended, interactive, interesting, and innovative action steps in these five key areas of lifestyle. The iThrive plan will help you to recover from cancer treatment, 
reduce your risk of recurrence, and to achieve optimal wellness. In other words, it will help you thrive. For more information about the iThrive Plan, visit www.ithriveplan.com. That's ithriveplan.com. Check it out today and receive a special time-limited offer. Visit www.ithriveplan.com today. It's time to thrive, everyone. Are you interested in boosting your brain power? So am I. This is Carolyn Gazella, co-host of 5 to Thrive Live, and I'm here to tell you about a supplement that I take. The human brain needs a lot of nutrition to stay focused throughout the day. Citicoline naturally enhances energy-producing centers within the brain. Cognizant delivers a clinically tested, patented form of citicoline that supplies your brain with the energy it needs to stay sharp. Look for Cognizant on the label, or for more information, visit Cognizant.com. That's Cognizant.com. Welcome back to 5 to Thrive Live. I'm Dr. Lisa Schuler, and I'm talking with naturopathic doctor and acupuncturist Judith Boyce about sexual dysfunction, in, uh, particularly in people who have been diagnosed for cancer. And we've uh, really covered a lot thus far, and I want to pick us uh, up right up with men. And one of the very common sexual dysfunction issues in men who've been treated for various cancers, not just prostate cancer, but I think top of the list, prostate cancer is erectile dysfunction. And um, so let's let's talk a little bit about that. We know that there are definitely pharmaceutical options. Maybe you could just touch on that. And then uh, just maybe along with that, are is there a place even to consider something natural? Definitely there are there's options, natural options. The pharmaceuticals are Viagra or the phosphodiesterase inhibitors that basically dilate blood vessels in the in the perineal area and the whole pelvic area, which then causes an erection. And they found that using those drugs right after surgery can actually, well, actually a month after surgery can help with the recovery of the blood vessels in that area. But it's not the only treatment that's available. It's a very helpful one, um, but not the only treatment, which we'll touch on, I'm, I'm assuming, in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is there is there are two major natural supplements that have very similar effectiveness, and that's L-arginine, which is an amino acid that also causes that blood vessel dilation. And it seems to work much better when it's paired with pycnogenol, which is a pine bark extract. So those two working together, the pycnogenol and the L-arginine, and also a third ingredient called aspartate, those three actually have been the most effective in being able to dilate those blood vessels so that there's normal blood flow into the penis. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is uh, helpful for a lot of men who are facing erectile dysfunction. Um, however, there are some men who, for various reasons, have a degree of nerve destruction that um, prevents those medications from being an option. And I was actually uh, had the opportunity last year to, to learn a lot more about um, medical devices that are have you know, been developed to help men, and they're really pretty fantastic, actually. So I don't know if you could just describe a little bit about some of the other options beyond the pharmaceutical ones that might be available. Right, and there, the I'm assuming what you're referring to are the vacuum pumps, and mm-hmm. they are. I, I was thinking about the Austin Power movies that were making fun of the vacuum pumps from the 60s and 70s, but they've Mm -hmm. actually become much, much better designed. And they found that the vacuum pumps are a way of very easily, very naturally being able to draw more blood flow. And um, when someone is using the, the vacuum specifically for an erection, then you insert a ring at the top of the penis, which holds the blood flow. But actually right after... Um, a radical prostatectomy after prostate surgery, you don't use the ring. You just draw the blood into the penis without 
um, blocking off the blood flow. And that is very helpful, very important for being able to help restore blood vessel function. Uh, another form of um, treatment that is sometimes used is injections of PGE2, or sorry, PGE1, which is a prostaglandin into the penis, that's really painful and difficult to do. And there's not very good compliance. Most people don't want to do that. But the vacuum pump is very easy to use. It's comfortable. And there are similar or better results with the vacuum pump than doing those penile injections. So it's less expensive it's easier to use. It's not painful. It, it's something that also potentially the person's partner could participate with them and using that device. And it could become part of their intimacy as well and part of their care for each other. Um, right. So it, there are a lot of benefits, a lot of pluses to the vacuum devices. Right. And I think that there, um, there are some really amazing devices that have been developed now that, um, that are basically created in a way that they're surgically implanted and it uh, becomes very difficult to, to even, you can't see it from the outside and you kind of inflate um, the penis, oh. the, they insert some, like some balloons almost that right. you literally inflate through the scrotum so it's just a very you know cosmetically it, it looks and acts just like a penis would in the process of becoming erect and yet it's all done with this manual and then there's even a way to do it with just like pressing a little button inside the scrotum I mean, they're just fantastically designed now right and I, i'm sorry that was I, I didn't realize you were going on to the internal ones the penile implants they have gotten much much better and they've also gotten much better about lowering infection rates that used to be one of the concerns about having a penile implant is having post surgical infections and they've done things to um, change the 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 material that's used in those implants so there's a much much lower infection rate and mm -hmm. they are seemingly um, seamless literally um, and the physical appearance for the um, for the penile implants. So there's there has been a revolution in the last five to ten years in improving the penile implants. I think it's we've seen the prostate cancer rates go up and the number of men going through the prostate surgery. There's been much more emphasis placed on making really good penile implants. Right. So for, just to kind of summarize a little bit, so for women, I think the main emphasis is really on finding the right combination of um, vaginal dilatation strategies. You, you gave a great way to do it with just using fingers, along with the, the, the appropriate lubrication, vaginal lubrication and moisturizers. And for men, uh, it's really more about uh, blood flow, altering blood flow either pharmacologically or potentially through natural substances. And then if that is not successful, there are some devices that can be used. So I think that, you know, and there's, and there's a lot more things we didn't even talk about, but I think just that alone should give people hope if, if this is the issue for them. Yes. And just, just a little quick note there too, is that men who were using the Viagra like drugs and doing the vacuum or the penile implant also did better, like when you combined different types of treatment, there was even more improvement. So it's not an either or. Um, often the, the protocol, the NCCN guidelines, the cancer guidelines, so that you start with the pharmaceuticals and then you progress to the others, but they're also finding if you push a bit, nudge a bit and say, I really want to combine some of these things that people actually end up with better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And all of that, of course, is context in the really the first half of our discussion, which is about sexual uh, sensuality and making sure that um, that the sensuality between you and your partner, or if you're partnered, uh, is is as valued or understood as just sexual uh, intercourse itself. So with that being said, I'd love for you to just share any final thoughts with our listeners. Uh, obviously, you have a lot to contribute, so this is a little unfair, but what would you like to leave our listeners with? <laughs> um, one of the things is that you're not alone. There, I, I would guess now, in retrospect, if I thought back to different patients that I've worked with, I bet many more of them would have spoken up 
and said, you know what, I'm really worried. I'm really worried about my libido and my partner, and I just don't know what to do with this. You're not alone, and be, um, it, it's, I'd encourage you to bring up the topic, and as more people are willing to talk, then the medical profession will become more and more educated and be able and willing to offer more and more options for people. So it's an important discussion. It's part of life. Our sexuality is part of life, literally, and it's uh, ideally something that becomes a matter-of-fact part of our medical care. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really well said, and I, I we didn't actually bring this up, and it's a little bit of a doorknob sign, as we like to say in the medical profession, but I think it's also important just to emphasize that this whole discussion is applicable to heterosexual, homosexual, mm-hmm. uh, monogamous Poly, I don't know what that word is, but you know, people have multiple polygamous. partners. People, mm-hmm. <laughs> there we go. Mm-hmm. People who are uh, not partnered. I mean, sexuality and sensuality is, as you said, a part of health and a part of who we are. So, uh, all of this applies to all of those individuals. And boy, this has been a great show, Judah. Thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us about this topic. And where can our listeners find out more about you? And also, do you have any resources uh, for them to find out more about their options for sexual dysfunction? Yes. And if you'd like to continue the conversation with me, my website is www.drjudithboyce.com. And that's all lowercase, no punctuation, D-R-Judith-B-O-I-C-E. If you want more information, also research and references and resources, the two websites I'd encourage you to start with. One is at cancer.net, the ASCO site. They do have articles on sexual health. And if you just do a search on sexual health, there's some really great resources that will come up. And the other is a website that was um, developed by Dr. Leslie Shover. And she is a sex, sex therapist and a psychologist, and she has a website that is willtolove.com, and that's the word will, the number two, and then love.com, willtolove.com. Great. And she has a lovely um, a handout to give you some steps to follow to begin to that process of bringing up your sexuality with your physician. How can you begin that discussion? And it's also a great resource for healthcare providers. She also provides information for healthcare providers who may be kind of in the dark about how to begin that process of talking to patients about sexuality. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your evening and may you experience joy, laughter, and love. It's time to thrive, everyone. 